The scripture reading this morning is from Micah 7.18 and Luke chapter 2, verses 33 through 35. Feel free to follow along in your Bible or using the screens uh, in front of you. Uh, Hear the word of the living and the true God, Micah 7.18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And then Luke 2, 33 through 35. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family. How are you doing today? Let's pray, and we'll get right down to work. Father, we come to you this morning as your needy kids, and we need to hear your voice, and our, our souls are hungry. Uh, we, need, we need to be fed by you. And so as your kids, we pause to recognize, Father, uh, holy is your name. You deserve all of us and everything that we have to give. Hallowed be your name. We pray this morning that your kingdom would come and your will would be done, not in some faraway place, not in some theoretical way, but that your, your kingdom would come and your will would be done actually today in our hearts and in the life, life of our family and in our relationships. And so we pray that you would open our hearts now and give us the gift of humility and give us faith to hear and receive and respond to your word. Father, we pray that you would give us today the bread that we need for our souls, not only to live, but to flourish in the waiting And we pray, Father, that you would lead us away from temptation and deliver us from evil. You know that our feet are so prone, so quick to run from you. And Father, we we acknowledge that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And we confess that in many moments this week, we lived like it's our kingdom and our power and like we deserve glory. And so we... We turn from those impulses, those rebel tendencies, and we run back to you, Father, acknowledging it's all yours, and we need your presence, and we need your power uh, through Jesus and through the work of your Spirit. So, Father, help us to be present in this moment. Help us not to rush through these shared minutes. Help us to hear your voice, and I pray that you'd give our souls life according to your word, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this is the final week of our Advent series, the final Sunday. I've been thinking about that for six days, that this is the last sermon I'll preach before Christmas morning. That's always a fun and shocking uh, thought to ponder. Here we are at the end of, of a year. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. Do you know the shortest day of the year is this week? Do you know that? December 22nd. It's the shortest day, the least amount of light. I love running, um, and I love running in the morning, but I hate running in the dark, and I hate running in the cold. And my friends, 
This is cold right now. If you're new to Okinawa, there's a reason I'm wearing flannel and it's not to be cool, right? I'm 41 and I'm homeschooled. Any aspiration of being, being cool, I mean, I forgot about that 20 or 25 years ago. I'm wearing flannel because I'm cold and I did run the heat in my little car all the way to church this morning and I have no shame about that. So we joke about December 22nd, um, I will still get up and run, but I'll hate every, I'll, I, not hate, that's a strong word, I will not enjoy those, those moments. Uh, I was thinking about that all week this week, and while we joke about that date on the calendar and we laugh at how short the day will be and ha-ha, it's going to be cold here in Okinawa, we need to acknowledge that for many of you this morning, you feel like you are living a perpetual December 22nd in this season, almost as if Groundhog Day has been imported into Advent, and it's that December 22nd. It's dark, and it's cold in your life, and you are waiting for the sun to rise. And it's like it's been the shortest day of the year in your soul for a really long time now. And so all through Advent, we've talked about how we are awaiting people. Jesus came in the first Advent, his first coming, and with his coming, with his arrival, the sun rose and shone light into the brokenness of our rebel world. He promised to come again, and when he comes again, the sun will be fully, it'll be all the way up in the sky, and the, the light of Jesus will have dispelled all of the shadows and all of the darkness in the world. That is when all of the sad things in our world will finally come untrue, as Tolkien likes to say. But in the meantime, Jesus is doing the work of restoration and redemption, but he's doing it slower than we would like for him to do it. Can't you just speed things up a little bit, Jesus? And so we wait impatiently. It's dark and it's cold, and Jesus is not working on our timetable, and we don't like that. And so here we are on December 22nd or so it feels, and we're still waiting. We've talked about waiting with hope and waiting with peace and waiting with joy. This morning we will cons consider the idea of waiting with love, and they're all related because waiting in the darkness, waiting on December 22nd in your soul is difficult enough. It's against our nature. But now you're telling me that I should be waiting on the darkest day in my life with hope? You serious? Like, how about just waiting? How about I just get through it? That's enough, right? But now we're talking about waiting with peace, like being okay with the darkness and the cold. You want me to wait with, did you say joy, like happiness? Now you're outside of your mind. Guys, that's impossible to our nature. And that reminded me of a, a quote that I like uh, from David Benner, in a great little book that he's written on the theme of love. I would encourage you to, to check it out. And he writes this. He says, gravity may hold planets in orbit. It does. Nuclear force may hold atoms together. It does. But only love has power to transform persons. And what David is talking about is it is impossible for you to wait with hope joy or peace through the December 22nds of your life if you are not very near the love of the Father. 
what David is not talking about is our capacity to love other people. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about our need as created sons and daughters to be in proximity to and open to the love of, of the Father. Only his love will soften our hearts as if our hearts are frozen over a little bit from the December 22nd experiences and the only way that they will be thawed and feel joy and know peace and have hope is if they have been thawed by and are being warmed by the Father's love. And that's why I like Advent. Here's our big idea for the morning. Advent announces our Father's undying, always delighting love for his kids. Advent announces the Father's undying, always delighting love for his kids. Now that sounds good, but we have a complicated, maybe confused relationship with God and with love. So this morning we're gonna consider kind of three pieces of, of this idea of being close to the Father's love. And here they are first, just many questions. We'll consider some questions, many questions, and then many fall and many rise. Many questions, many fall, and many rise. Let's start with our complicated, very often confused relationship with our Father and with his love. And uh, though I have this titled Many Questions, you'll notice none of these have a question mark after them, but they're statements, I think, that should uh, generate some, some questions for us if we're being honest. Uh, because these questions are already bouncing around in our souls, whether we say them out loud or not. So the first, God is love. I just want to gently push on you this morning and as a brother and as a friend say that for most of us in this room, that is far more expression than it is experience. You have the artwork, you've got the wallpaper on your computer, you've got the t-shirt, the bumper sticker, whatever, Guys, it's far more expression than it is experience. We will say it out loud while we don't totally believe it in our souls. And the, the, the problem, the confusion, if you will, or the, the questions revolve around two things in that first statement, God and love. I was thinking about that this week. Um, hey, guys, could you hit the game clock for me, please? We'll be here till uh, the Colts beat the Patriots today if we don't get the clock going. <laughs> Have they started? Have they kicked off? Not yet. All right. I'll pray about it later. <laughs> Thanks, Evan. God is love. You know, whenever I sit down with any of you guys now to get to know you and hear your story, which I'll just admit publicly, it's not with as many of you as I would like frequently enough. The churn here, trying to keep up with meeting new people and developing meaningful relationships is brutal. So if I've not spent time with you in that, in that way yet, it's not intentional. I do want to hear your story. So when I ask those stories, though, the way I like to ask now, rather than just meeting how, or asking how did you meet, I like to ask on which platform did you first meet? Or which dating, on which dating app did your relationship come into existence? Because the pendulum swung, guys. Uh, if you didn't meet through a dating app or a platform, you might be old. But the thought occurred to me this week, most of us relate to God as if we met him on a dating app or a relationship platform, but then never actually met him in person. 
You like his profile. You read all the things about him. Some of your friends actually met him. And they've confirmed the things that are true in his profile. He's kind. He's just. He's loving. He's compassionate. He's patient. But it's all expression for you. It's not experience. And so there's a a kind of a cold distance between the words that we say, and, and we say them wishfully, like, I want this to be true in my life, but the reason we are confused or have so many questions about love starts with the reality that we don't know God the way that we think that we do. We don't know him personally. We can say a lot of things about him, but we, ex- we don't come near and sit and just relate and receive. So that's our first problem or the root of so many of our questions. And then love, without going into a ton of detail, let's just say it this way, our thoughts or ideas about love very generally have been more formed by our culture than they have been formed by Christ and his word. And so it's no wonder then that we are so confused about or so conflicted over or have so many questions about God and love, because who is he anyway? And what is his love like? So God is love. I think it's more expression than it is personal experience for many of us. Uh, God loves. So there, there it is in verbal form. So we know God loves. God is love. He always acts out of who he is. So God loves. But that's a little impersonal. Who does he love? And how does he love them? In what ways are his, is his love received? And then there are questions we could say, God loves me. So that's good. We're still moving. Now, all of these statements are true, right? Are they all true? Yeah, they're all true. But when we say God loves me, the question then becomes, um, to what extent does he love me? Because that's what's going on in the back of my mind. I think God loves me. His profile said he does. All the words about him say that he does. My friends, my pastors all grown up say that God loves me. To what extent does he loves me? Does he love me? God, now here's where most of us operate. God loves me when? God loves me if. Because we've heard all the sermons, we've read all the books, all the Sunday school lessons, and though we would say God's love is unconditional, it's, it's almost like a, a, a military auto sales commercial and there are a million asterisks below that. So we say that God loves me unconditionally, but we've been so conditioned And our souls naturally default this way anyway, because in our relationships, we treat love like it's entirely transactional, right? Constantly earning, keeping, proving, all of that. God loves me when, God loves me if. And then this line, um, which is powerful, but there's like dark undercurrent to it. God still loves me, with the emphasis being on the word still so that's beautiful because we normally say this after a series or after a season of profound brokenness or running from God. Like, man, God still loves me. And we affirm that and we want to hear each other saying that, but the danger is in the word still, as if it was in doubt, or it's a it's a chore for him to love you, or that it's more duty than it is delight, or that it was in question, like he still loves me, but if I go there again, or, or do this thing again, maybe he won't next time. He does now, he still loves me. 
but the emphasis falls on that word still and the idea that it's almost laborious for God to love me in this way. Like, good thing he's willing to muscle it through with me and love me. So we have a ton of questions. Let's turn to one text which gives a definitive answer to so many of these questions. And that is in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. I really only want you to walk out of here with one thing today, and I'm about to show you what that is. Verse 18, who is a God like you? Man, you pardon my iniquities every day. Every day I sin against you in thought, word, and deed. I do things and I leave things undone. But you pardon me. Who is like you? You pass over my transgressions. Nobody passes over them. Everybody camps out on them. My own soul camps out on my own transgressions. I camp out on the transgressions of the people I'm in relationship with. The Father passes them over. He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Guys, if this is not underlined or circled or highlighted or tattooed, they open at about 11. <laughs> Get it done. He delights, that one word, delights in steadfast love. Family, the Father loves to love you. He takes joy in loving you. He takes extreme joy in pursuing you with an undying, ever-delighting love. He will again have compassion on us. This gives us a glimpse into the nature of God's love. That word compassion so often in scriptures is used as it relates to a mother's posture towards her young. That is the father's posture towards us. It is tender, it is gentle, it is nurturing and nourishing. That is his posture. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Guys, he delights in steadfast love. I'm like, all right, John, that's nice, but probably the people he's talking to deserved his steadfast love. Probably the people he's talking to were so good at being his kids that, of course, it makes sense that the father loved loving them or took delight in loving them. Have you read Micah? You should read Micah today. You should read Micah. Do you know what the statements, I mean, we don't have time to go into all the statements, but there are statements like this about those people. They loved evil more than they loved good. They ran after darkness and away from the light. I think the most compelling and maybe poetic line in the book is that they loved making straight things crooked. So let's just camp out on that one for a moment. How many things in your life that at one time were straight or should be straight, right? As they should be is what we mean. Just and perfect and beautiful. How many straight things have become crooked things? Those are the people in Micah, fam. And the father says over them, I delight in showing steadfast love. Not that I made a covenant and... I guess I'll keep it, not, 
you're killing me, Smalls, right? All the, all the words that we have to go with, I think of all the nonverbal expressions with my kids, right? Because we are most like God when we delight in loving people who are not delightful, i.e., the little people sometimes running around, right? So guys, then how much of our life then is unlike God? Because what do we do? We delight in loving people who are delightful. I delight in loving you as long as you say it back and you're kind and all the things. God delights in loving us when we have taken all of the straight things in our lives and made them crooked. But we don't believe that. We are so conditioned and our souls so default to this idea that, okay, maybe the Father loves me because he's committed, but he doesn't take joy in loving me. Guys, what does it say? The Father delights in steadfast love toward us. The Father delights in loving us. So we read that, and then we look at our experiences and we think, okay, I wish he would just give me a sign that that's true. We love signs, don't we? Everything you do in life, you want a sign for. Uh, we, we approach our relationships that way. Like, God, just give me a sign. I think she's the one. I think he's the one. If, if she is, um, the 45-pound dumbbells that are normally piled here in the gym in the morning, if they could just be over there, I'll know it's from you, Right? We get super goofy, guys. We talk to God, and we're like, God, just give me just any sign, any sign. But actually, not, not any sign. Um, if you would, and then we come up with some goofy request, we want a sign for everything. So we're like, Dad, if this were true, if you actually do delight in loving me, just give me a sign. Well, the Father has chosen to be kind to us and to honor that request, that's exactly what we see in Luke, if we will have eyes to see it. Luke chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 33 and 34, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. We're, we're coming back to Simeon, our Advent with old people theme, and here's Simeon words. He's speaking now specifically to Mary. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Jesus' mother, behold, this child, now notice this word, is appointed... For the fall and the rising of many Israel, and for what? He's appointed for what? A sign. That is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that from many so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Do you want a sign that the Father's love towards you is not only undying, but it's a delighting love? Like the Father loves to love you, the sign that he would give us is the advent, is Jesus himself. Advent announces the Father's undying, ever-delighting love for you. Specifically, Jesus himself is the Father's sign that he delights in loving you. Now, what, uh, I know we all come from different cities, different regions of the country, but uh, billboards take on different character in all of these different regions. Just give me maybe two or three examples. What billboard dominated at least a decade of your life and it'll never escape? It's always going to be in your mind. A sign. What is it? Newport cigarettes. Newport cigarettes. Wait a second. Brent, where? Savannah, Georgia. 
All right, all right. Newport cigarettes. Is the sign true about whatever it's saying? Okay. <laughs> All right. So we got Newport. What else do we have? Brent will close his eyes and drift off into glorious dreams of Newport cigarettes. Who else? All right. I'll come back to that sign that needs redemption, but south of the border, I think probably most of us have driven the 95 corridor more times than we care. Yeah, we, all, we can all close our eyes and see and smell and taste all the south of the border signs. They're everywhere. Eat more chicken. I'm just going to walk away from Chick-fil-A this morning. Yep. But I'm glad you guys can enjoy Chick-fil-A. It's a shadow of the better things to come. A weak shadow, but a shadow still. One more, maybe? Sign. Got milk. Yeah, the dairy campaign, which none of us can do anymore. It's like got almond milk now. It's not quite the same, is it? Um... For me, when I was a kid, my dad and I, and I actually, as a young kid, I guess it was, I'm not sure what child labor laws we were violating, but I worked for this company too. And so we would travel the country and sell running apparel at marathons and half marathons. So it was a really cool, cool job. And so we were driving to Atlanta, to Atlanta one time, and this is while um, O.J. Simpson was on trial, which if you're not old enough to remember, famous football player, um, Buffalo, actually who was on trial for the murder of his, I think, then ex-wife. National news, global news, really big deal. Um, Lots of tension, so just all the things. So my dad and I are driving south, and like 15 miles out, off in the distance, you see this massive billboard with just two words on it, really. It said, free OJ. It's all said, free OJ. So for about 15 minutes, this sign dominates my, my eyes. Driving, driving 10, 15 minutes, we get within maybe a football field or less of this sign. And underneath those words, free OJ, there's an asterisk, not kidding, tiny letters. It said, with a dozen donuts. Like genius marketing, because everybody thought a statement was being made, but it was just somebody capitalizing on a cultural moment and advertising. I will never forget that sign, and I will never forget that moment with my father, Guys, that's how Advent is supposed to be burned into our memory. But it's not. And so we beg God for a sign. All the while, the sign has been planted right in front of us, staring us in the face every day of our lives. But we want a different sign. We want a newer sign. And the Father says to us in all tenderness, Son, daughter, I delight in showing you undying, ever-delighting love, and the sign I have given to you is the advent of Jesus himself. So for those of you, some of you are just straight up Scrooges and you listen to Christmas music. There are some of you who haven't started yet, right? Shame. For the good of our souls, once a month when you Sabbath, because I know you're all practicing Sabbath principles in your life, and so you, you pull back, and you slow down, and you rest, and you listen, and you talk to your Father. For the good of your soul, you need to get your Christmas music, your Advent playlist out, and rehearse 
the promises of the advent. That is your sign that the Father loves you in an undying, ever-delighting kind of way. So Jesus is a sign. He's a sign, and many are going to fall, and many are going to rise. Let's, let's look at that first statement, uh, that, that many are going to fall. Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many, and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And then he Man, it's kind of, you can imagine the moment, right? Because it's even in parentheses in your Bible, because you know he's talking to Mary right now, and so he's saying these prophetic things, but then Simeon looks into the eyes of a mother, a young mom with her first baby, and prophetically says, your relationship with this son is going to drive a sword through your soul. Those are some powerful words, sobering for Mary to receive, but almost parenthetical, right? So many are going to fall. Those who fall are those who stand opposed to the sign, uh, and in their opposition to Jesus, the sign, his advent, their thoughts will be exposed. What does that mean? Well, we know from the storyline of the Bible that we were created in God's image. We were in his presence and related perfectly to to him, the world was as it should be, and our hearts were as they should be, but our first parents rebelled, and they fell away, right? We know it as the fall. They, they fell away from the Father's presence, and in falling away, they forfeited proximity to peace and to joy and to hope. They fell away from his love. They fell away. And so Jesus then has been appointed as the sign and based on his sign, Simeon says, many will fall. So we have all fallen already initially in our rebellion, but those who oppose the sign of the Father's undying love in Jesus will fall further still. So we have fallen away. We are far from the Father's home. He sends Jesus as a sign of his undying, ever-chasing, ever-pursuing love, but in our rebellion, we disbelieve. We're skeptical. We're cynical, we stiff-arm Jesus, we deny his claim of authority over our lives, all the things. And Simeon says, in the disbelieving, in the opposition to the sign that there is a God and that he does love us and that he is pursuing us in the person of Jesus, we fall further still and the thoughts of our hearts are revealed. All of our rebel thoughts are exposed in the falling away. And though Simeon does not walk it out to its fullest extent as your friend and as your pastor, I want to tell you this morning that the Father says that in continued opposition, there is a final falling away that occurs where we are forever separated from the Father's presence. And to be forever separated from his home with no chance of going back means we are forever separated from his love and from hope and from peace, from joy, from life. And the reality of this opposition, guys, let me just, let me contrast this. If you are sitting here this morning and you know deep down that you have spent a lifetime in opposition to the sign of Jesus, even though maybe your words have said, no, I'm, I, I, God is love and God loves me, but you know deep down your, your life, your heart are in opposition to you. The good news of the gospel is that as long as you have breath, in kindness, the Father invites you to turn from your opposition, opposition to Jesus 
and by faith receive him as a sign of your father's undying, ever-delighting love, and in the turning you will know mercy. But friends, in the absence of our turning, as we draw our last breath, we will be met with our final and full and complete irrevocable falling away where we will be forever separated from the Father's presence. Many will fall. Many will stand opposed. The thoughts of many hearts, Simeon says, will be exposed. But now let's zip back down to his statement where he says, not only will many fall though, many will rise. Many will rise. I like to sit and just think about that as it relates to my own life because if I need to rise, what does that imply about who I am or where I'm at? If I need to rise, where am I likely? I'm down low, which is exactly what the gospel says about us. In our fall, we were, we could use, what, what, what words does the Bible use to describe where we were at? Dead, okay, so we were dead, dead. We need to rise from a death. What else? What other words are used? Enemy, yes. We were an enemy of God, which just further illustrates the beauty of our Father's love. Even while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Scarcely for a good man would someone die. I've got a family. You're good, but I got a family. Jesus died for us while we were his enemy. So we need to be risen from dead. We need to be risen uh, from an identity of enemy. We were sinners and he makes us saints. We were rebels and he makes us sons and daughters. What else? How else do we need to rise? See, we don't sit and think about these things very often, do we? A lot of them are assumed Let's consider this, if I, need to, if I needed to rise, I was down really low. And in the, that is the beauty of the incarnation, guys. The God who created us took on human form. He was so high above us, but in order to rescue us and show us his undying love, he descended to the lowest point possible and rose us up again, raised us up again. We were down low. But what do we know from Micah chapter 7? Was this a drudgery for the Father? Do we believe it yet? He delighted in descending down low. He He delighted in appointing Jesus, and Jesus delighted in being appointed for your rescue. And he descended low, and he raised us up to new life in Jesus. Many will rise. Now, in some of my Advent readings or listenings, actually, I'm listening uh, through uh, the Advent readings, I came to Mark, an account in Mark chapter uh, 5, I believe. Let me get there, I'm sorry. Mark 5, verse 41. Jesus has been invited to heal a a girl, and everybody thought the girl was dead. Jesus said she was just unwell, and everybody laughed at him. But Jesus walks into where she was, unresponsive and lying down, And, and look at these words. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he spoke to her in Aramaic, 
Those two words there are Aramaic. And those two words mean, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. Jesus took on human form and the Father sent him to you. He was appointed to come to you as a sign of the Father's undying, delighting love. And do you know what he said when he looked you in the eyes? He said, son, get up. Daughter, girl, get up. Get up. Rise up and walk. And what happened? Her lungs were filled with air, her ligaments were animated, and her limbs were strengthened because Jesus doesn't just speak hollow words, he speaks powerful words. And so when Jesus speaks to you and says, get up, he gives you the power to get up and your heart is thawed by his love. And so friends, this morning, you and I represent the girl who is flat out on the bed and Jesus looks you in the eyes through the advent, and he says to you, son, get up. Daughter, get up. And so the question for you this morning then is, where this week did you fall down and fall away from the Father's love? What is Jesus calling you to get up from? What darkness, what despair, what hopelessness, what shame, what guilt, what pain, Guys, when we talk about this being a perpetual December 22nd, I'm not saying that as a cute sermon illustration. I'm saying that because as a family, we have clusters of people who are walking through valleys of the shadow of death right now, together. Some of you are in that valley right now, and we are in it with you as a family. And the beauty of the gospel is it's not that the Father delights in your pain. The Father, through Jesus, delights in being present with you and sharing your pain. And he looks you in the eye and he holds out his hand and he says to you, son, get up. And so the question is, what do you need to get up from this morning? Get up. The sun's gonna set today. It'll rise tomorrow morning. The Father's mercies will be new. He will be near you, demonstrating again his undying love for you and Jesus will be present with you and he will again look you in the eyes and say to you, son, let's go. Let's get up. Come into my love. Be near and express your need. Let me close with this. This is back in Micah 7, right where we began. Micah 7, verse 8. And some of you need to underline and highlight and tat up this verse as well. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall... I will rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Family, we are awaiting people, but we do not wait alone. And when we say that when we fall, we will rise, we are being reminded that we are imperfect sons and daughters who will stumble and fall a thousand times this week. And every single time we fall, 
Jesus will be there and will look us in the eye and will say, son, get up. And we don't get up because we're strong and we're powerful in and of ourselves. We get up again because the all-powerful one and the all-loving one and the ever-patient one is present with us in the brokenness and the pain. When we fall, we will get up again. And in the darkness, when I sit in the darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Family, I talk too fast and I talk too much. I want us to be present in this one beautiful reality together this morning. The Father delights in loving you with an undying, ever-pursuing love. You're going to fall this week, and when you fall, you will open your eyes and you will see Jesus there looking into your eyes, extending his hand, saying to you in gentleness, Let's go. Get back up. You're not staying there. Family, Jesus does not leave behind a single one of the daughters or sons that have been adopted into the Father's family. You will fall. I will fall. You will not stay down. Not because you're good at getting up, but because you have a father who is so committed to you getting up again and not in a begrudging way, not like me when my son falls down and I put my head in my hands and groan and then begrudgingly help him up and say, now don't do that again, son. I'm ashamed that that happened. No, the father is nothing like me in those moments and he loves to be present with you and loves to pick you up and listen, He is going to bring you all the way home. Full stop. You will not be left behind. Not one of you. He doesn't, Jesus does not lose a single son or daughter that the Father has given to him. Not one. Not one. So friends, forget everything else I said this morning. Mark this down. The Father loves to love you. He takes pleasure. He delights in it. It is a joy for him to love you in all of your brokenness. And when you have made all the straight things in your life crooked, the father looks at you and says, that's my daughter. That's my son. And I love them. And Advent is the sign that I will bring them all the way home. Grant's going to come now and lead us in, a mo- in some moments of reflection. We'll sing together. We'll have a moment of silence together, and we will confess together.